0: Welcome to Inspiration from American History with Rebecca Price Janney. Today's story is A Lost Generation. Many of those who emerged from the wreckage of World War I thought they had passed through a hellish experience, while paradoxically no longer actually believing in hell. The devastation and disillusionment of the hostilities as well as the influence of modern thinkers like Friedrich Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud, had made a profound impact on this generation of lost souls. Shortly before the Great War, Nietzsche had proclaimed that religious leaders and other authority figures had used the idea of hell as a bizarre supernatural threat to keep people in line. Similarly, Freud asserted all religion and its doctrines could be categorized as institutionalized neurosis. Society's moorings were coming undone, even in America, which had emerged from the war as a world power. The 1920s may be known today as the Roaring Twenties and the Jazz Age, but it was also a decade of disillusionment not just for war-weary Europeans and intellectuals, but also for the masses in America. The writers of that time expressed the fears and failings of humanity in stark terms and rose to positions of authority. The old arbiters of society, the politicians and clergy, seemed painfully out of touch with the new reality. The Liberals had misread the time signs by prophesying peace when there clearly was no peace, and the conservative traditionalists were on the defensive against challenges from science and the humanities. The war shattered the old social order, leaving many without a sense of purpose or a moral compass by which to steer their lives. In the aftermath of the conflict, many writers looked to the newly created Soviet Union for direction, since its atheistic philosophy of communist socialism appeared to be working. Why not, they thought, eradicate beliefs and traditions that obviously hadn't succeeded, especially since Christianity and capitalism they felt had failed them, Why not try something new? While the major literary figures of 1920s America mocked both Christian beliefs and the democratic system, one of them surprised the world when he actually became a professing Christian. While living in England in 1927, T.S. Eliot went public with his Declaration of Faith in Jesus Christ and joined the Anglican Church. His first key work after that, Ash Wednesday, speaks of his wrestling with God and what it was like to embrace faith after living in disbelief. Many of his contemporaries expressed their disappointment that Eliot had gone Christian, but it couldn't have come as a complete surprise. He had long been contemplating faith issues. For example, in The Wasteland, He had employed imagery from Dante's Inferno to describe the people standing at the entrance to hell. As people groped to understand life in an unfamiliar landscape, the way they thought about the afterlife changed. One major contributor to that shift was Roman Catholicism, whose numbers were steadily rising in America. Immigrants and their offspring were beginning to exert considerable influence on the American mindset about heaven and hell, as Catholics began to hold major positions of leadership. This increased the social standing of other Catholics and made the teachings and practices of their communion more mainstream, particularly the doctrine of purgatory, where the devout are cleansed and prepared for heaven. They also popularized the idea of praying to deceased saints and the Virgin Mary. In this era, Christian theology as a whole had swung from a theocentric view of heaven to one more oriented around people and their earthly relationships. In this newer version, believers in Christ were all good people, according to most liberals, would be reunited with loved ones in heaven and enjoy a perfected form of the life they'd known on earth. The culture promoted the idea that people could do as they pleased and God wouldn't really mind all that much. They could drink bootlegged whiskey, shorten their skirts, bob their hair, smoke, dance, and joyride without worrying about eternal consequences. America's national religion, Protestantism, was also in flux with the changing times, as some leaders pledged their allegiance to the old standard beliefs about heaven and hell, while others came out in favor of a more modern, benevolent interpretation, resulting in a major confrontation between fundamentalism and modernism. Initially, the term fundamentalist referred simply to the defenders of traditional, orthodox Christianity. Actually, those who had been at the forefront of mainstream Protestantism throughout American history. Historian George Marsden observes that their most alarming experience was that of finding themselves living in a culture that by the 1920s was openly turning away from God. At the heart of modernism lay the theory of evolution, and many avant-garde thinkers created the stereotype of fundamentalists as ignorant hayseeds who decried science and reason in an ill-conceived effort to prove once again that the world was flat. Reality, however, did not always match that pigeonhole. The most well-known guardian of Christian Orthodoxy in the 1920s was a brilliant New Testament scholar from Princeton Theological Seminary, hardly a bastion of the dimwitted. J. Gresham Machen was born in 1881 in Baltimore, a son of privilege and culture, who graduated from Johns Hopkins University before going on to further studies at both Princeton Seminary and Princeton University. During his graduate years, Machen spent time in Germany, where he was exposed to its theological liberalism, and he underwent a faith crisis. Upon his return to Princeton, his doubts were erased by B.B. Warfield and Francis Patton, who helped him reaffirm Orthodox Christianity. Machen became a New Testament professor at the seminary. He disliked the term fundamentalist because he said it sounded like something new, when in fact it was a reaffirmation of historic Christianity. In his classic 1923 book, Christianity and Liberalism, Machen made a case that modernism, wasn't even Christian. Modernism's most popular spokesman in the 1920s was the pastor Harry Emerson Fosdick, who came up through the Baptist tradition before becoming a Presbyterian minister. A graduate of Colgate, he received theological training at Union Seminary in New York, a major center for liberalism. Fosdick boasted that he had never recited the Apostles' Creed and he repudiated the virgin birth, scriptural inerrancy, and the second coming, saying the Lord is to be found in living experience, not at the end of some creed. Back in the Middle Ages, theology was the queen of the sciences and the final authority in all matters pertaining to life and death. If there was a question about the afterlife, a person consulted the church and the Bible for answers. If someone wondered why sickness happened, he looked to the Bible. If there was a question about nature, the answer had to be theological. Why did water travel downhill? Because God wanted it to be that way. Every question had to be settled theologically. The sun rose in the east because God made it so. If there was a disagreement between math and scripture, math was wrong. Scripture was the authority for everything. With the coming of the industrial and scientific revolutions, there was more of a compartmentalization of authority. How fast an object fell to the ground was considered a scientific question. Likewise, how trees grew, how the solar system operated, all were to be handled scientifically. Questions of ultimate importance, such as where we came from and where we, where we were going when we died, were religious questions. At that time, science and theology were v- viewed mainly on equal footing. They had their own set of rules. Whichever realm the matter belonged to, was authoritative in that matter. In the 1920s, at the time of the media frenzy over the so-called Scopes Monkey Trial, there came a watershed in American thought. Suddenly, science became the authority on everything, including life's origins and what would happen when we died. No longer was religion about truth. It was a matter of personal opinion that also had to submit to science's dominion. The Scopes Trial was a classic battle between fundamentalism and modernism that took place when teacher John Scopes broke a Tennessee statute by teaching evolution at Dayton's Ree County High School. The American Civil, Civil Liberties Union had announced earlier It was willing to fund a test case of the new law, and Scopes, though initially reluctant, decided to participate. The ensuing trial brought a circus atmosphere to the small town as the popular but fading orator, William Jennings Bryan, prosecuted the case, and the acclaimed ACLU attorney, Clarence Darrow, defended Scopes. Darrow believed the outcome of the trial would have sweeping repercussions for human history. Scopes isn't on trial, he said. Civilization is on trial. The prosecution is opening the doors for a reign of bigotry equal to anything in the Middle Ages. He was joined by the caustic H.L. Mencken, who covered the trial for the Baltimore Sun, and who openly despised Christians. He especially thought of Orthodox believers as homo boobians who believed in imbecilic doctrines. Throughout the trial, he and Darrow seized every opportunity to diminish Brian and Christianity. After eight brutally hot days, the trial ended when the jury found Scopes guilty and fined him $100. Mencken believed that in spite of the verdict, the trial had been a great victory for the forces of progress and modernism over antiquated, outdated Christianity. At church on the Sunday after the trial, Brian offered the prayer, concluding with the words of a favorite hymn, Faith of Our Fathers, Holy Faith, we will be true to thee till death. After lunch with his wife and a few phone calls, he lay down for a nap, from which he never awakened. Upon hearing the news, Mencken said, God aimed at Darrow, missed, and hit Brian instead. Brian's death brought about a national outpouring of respect and grief, as well as an attempt by some modern thinkers to distance themselves from Mencken and Darrow. Walter Lippmann of the New York World wrote, The truth is that when Mr. Darrow, in his anxiety to humiliate and ridicule Mr. Bryan, resorted to sneering and scoffing at the Bible, he convinced millions who act on superficial impressions that Brian is right in his assertion that the contest at Dayton was for and against the Christian religion. Even the humanist scholar Edwin Min said, When Clarence Darrow is put forth as the champion of the forces of enlightenment to fight the battle for scientific knowledge, one feels almost persuaded to become a fundamentalist. Brian's desire to be a good Christian soldier and his hope in heaven gave him peace of mind even when his enemies assailed him. The first line of his will echoes his serenity. It read, In the name of God, farewell. Trusting for my salvation to the blood of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Redeemer, and relying on his promise for my hope of resurrection, I consign my body to the dust and commend my spirit to God who gave it. Darrow's end wasn't nearly as placid. Shortly before his death in 1938, he received a visitor whose life's ambition was to meet the great attorney. Dr. John Herman asked Darrow, Now that you've come this far in your life, how would you sum up your life? Darrow walked over to a coffee table and picked up a Bible, surprising Herman, since Darrow had spent most of his life ridiculing it. This verse in the Bible describes my life, the lawyer said, opening to Luke 5, verse 5. Changing the we to I, he read aloud, I have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Then he put the Bible down and caught Herman's eye. I have lived a life without purpose, he said, without meaning, without direction. I don't know where I came from, and I don't know what I'm doing here. And worst of all, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I punch out of here. Thank you for joining me for Inspiration from American History. I'm Rebecca Price Janney.